Hello, and welcome back to MIMS Learning's Clinical Update podcast, focusing on clinical learning for healthcare professionals. I'm Pat Anderson, and today I'm going to be talking about the elephant in the room with consultant Dr. Anna Steele. What is the elephant in the room? Well, it's something that comes to us all, but that we don't often talk about. And as you may have guessed, I'm referring to the end of life. As Anna will point out, death is entirely normal, but it may be something that healthcare professionals find difficult to raise with patients. So she's on a mission to change that, providing training to enable professionals and patients to have those vital conversations around end of life sooner rather than later. So don't miss my interview with Anna in a bit. It's the last episode of season two already. It seems to have gone very fast. And this season, we've covered so many issues ranging from the climate crisis to effective contraception, from erectile dysfunction to heart failure and HIV, all great topics worthy of discussion. And we aim to bring you even more in season three. But today, before we meet Anna, we're going to offer some thoughts on a learning module that was only published very recently, but which has already proved popular with our learners. This is a clinical review on colorectal cancer. And my colleague Sangeeta Krishnan will be talking us through that in a minute. And later, with my colleague Rhiannon Ashman, we'll be providing three key learning points on a condition you may be seeing this autumn and winter. So stay tuned. But first, Sangeeta will take us through our new module on colorectal cancer and its diagnosis and treatment. Thanks, Pat. So today we're going to be talking about colorectal cancer, which, according to the WHO, is the third most common cancer worldwide. MIMS Learning has a very informative module on the subject, looking at the risk factors, epidemiology, screening, and management, written by Specialist Medical Oncology Registrar, Dr. Prerna Hadar. I'd like to recommend that all our listeners check this module out. There is a quiz you can take on the case of John, and follow along to see how this case is diagnosed and managed as it unfolds, which I found to be a useful study aid. Colorectal cancer is the second leading cause of cancer-related deaths in the UK. The incidence rates are higher in developed countries. Because this is such a major cause of death, it has been well-researched, and we now know that there are many factors predisposing a person to colorectal cancer. Aside from the more expected risk factors of age, family history, and genetics, IBD is another risk factor for colorectal cancer, and all of these are non-modifiable. Modifiable risk factors include obesity, lack of fiber intake, consuming red and processed meats, sedentary lifestyle, smoking, and type 2 diabetes. It must be said that not everyone with these risk factors will eventually develop colorectal cancer, so the mechanism through which this cancer develops is a lot more complex. You've had a look at this clinical review before, Pat. What were your thoughts on this module? Yes, I, I thought it was a very good module, and I notice it's been very popular with our learners. Can you remind me what it says about the symptoms of colorectal cancer? Yes, there may be no presenting symptoms at all, and symptoms can vary depending on the disease type, tumor location, and distribution. Common symptoms include altered bowel habits, fresh or altered blood in stool, abdominal discomfort, feeling of incomplete emptying after opening the bowels, weakness, fatigue, or malaise, nausea, vomiting, or loss of appetite, and symptoms that are consistent with iron deficiency anemia. 
So that sounds like quite a variety of symptoms to look out for. But as I recall, there's also a national screening programme that's quite well established now. You're right. There is a nationwide screening programme consisting of faecal sampling for blood. Individuals between the ages of 50 and 74 in Scotland or between 60 and 74 years for England are eligible for the screening, which is done by faecal immunochemical testing or FIT. And is FIT a good way to rule in or rule out colorectal cancer? FIT is more specific to blood in the lower GI tract and is more sensitive than previously used tests. It has a negative predictive value of 99.8%, which is what makes it such an excellent screening tool. There are some caveats, though. First, the test cannot differentiate between bowel cancer and IVD because it tests hemoglobin in the stool. For the same reason, any visible blood in stool will result in a positive fit. Conversely, a negative fit does not completely rule out a diagnosis of bowel cancer. And what does Dr. Hadar say about how colorectal cancer is treated? Yes, our expert Dr. Hadar says that treatment depends on its stage at the time of diagnosis, as well as its molecular characteristics. Treatment algorithms also differ between rectal and colonic cancers in the early stages. In the earlier stages, resection is the treatment of choice where feasible. But as the cancer progresses, often radical resections accompanied by neoadjuvant and adjuvant therapies will be needed. Treatment consists of a chemotherapy backbone consisting of an antimetabolite like 5-fluorouracil plus a cytotoxic agent like irinotecan or oxaliplatin. Patients without a mutation in the RAS gene can also be treated with anti-EGFR antibodies. Those who have a microsatellite instability or deficiency in mismatch repair genes can benefit from first-line treatment with an immune checkpoint inhibitor. These patients should also be investigated for Lynch syndrome. Patients are also tested for BRAF and HER2 mutations, and results of these tests can influence their subsequent lines of treatment. So as we've seen in the learning modules that we have about other cancers, the story seems to be that molecular profiling can now provide more targeted treatment options and improved survival outcomes. Absolutely. Thank you, Pat, for talking about this clinical review with me. If you're listening in, do check out the complete module on colorectal cancer and similar content on the subject. Links are available in the podcast notes for this episode. Thank you very much, Sangeeta. And we'll go now to our interview with Dr. Anna Steele. Today, I have with me Dr. Anna Steele, who's a consultant in geriatrics and general medicine at Barnet Hospital. And she has a special interest in end-of-life care and advanced care planning. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. So Anna has spoken for us at MIMS Learning Live and went down a storm at our June event where we had an interactive presentation featuring a patient played by an actor and a doctor played by a real doctor. And Anna was the moderator for the session and it was asking those difficult questions around an end-of-life diagnosis and it was really popular with our GP delegates. And as I understand it, you're frequently involved in training doctors around end-of-life care. So we thought it would be interesting to talk to you a bit more about what you do. And so first of all, could you tell us a little bit about you and your background? Yeah, sure. So as you mentioned, I'm a geriatrician and I've been training in the north central London area for quite a number of years now. The past five to 10 years, my specialist interest has really developed around end of life care and advanced care planning. 
And so most of my work has actually been at Barnes and the Royal Free Trust, but I've worked within other local trusts in the North Central area also on this topic. And the work I've done has mostly involved doing lots of quality improvement to try and improve our practices across the sector. I've been able to publish a fair bit on advanced care planning as well. And then in the last five years, my extrapolation, I suppose, into training others to do this. And I've developed a course called The Elephant in the Room, which aims to train all members of the MDT how to have good advanced care planning discussions, because it's something that in medical school, we don't really get taught. And in our higher training, we don't really get taught. So you get the situation where you're quite senior in your medical career and you're faced with these challenging conversations and no one's actually told you how to do it and you learn on the job but actually we need really good training and people need to learn how to talk to patients compassionately and how to have those personal conversations which some healthcare professionals themselves might not be comfortable with so trying to talk to someone else about what their end of life wishes are becomes even more challenging So there was a real gap in training and that's how it all developed really. And and I've just kind of run with it since. Great. And how is the the elephant in the room? It's a great title, by the way. And how is the elephant in the room training progressing? Are you finding it's, it's popular? I started it off with a few colleagues of mine and we started doing the training in and around North Central London. So we had funding from HEE, so Health Education England and UCL partners and we had different pockets of funding from different areas so we were able to do a lot of training around the whole sector. The Royal Free has very kindly funded this course now so we keep it at cost value for people who are outside of the trust and we try and train as many people within the trust as well but we also offer the course to other trusts so I've done training as far as Ireland. We can deliver training around the country thanks to the move towards Zoom post-COVID. And it, it's great because we're we're developing into subspecialist areas and not just general medicine and geriatrics, but um, thinking about how to deliver advanced care planning training to more specialist groups. So it's evolving all the time, but it's going really well. That's great. Great to hear. And for you personally, what got you interested in this whole area of the end of life uh, and advanced care planning was a kind of pivotal moment in your own clinical practice where you thought, this is a skill that I need? I think personal experiences often play into why people choose to do things. I had the good fortune of three grandparents who I was very close to and was old enough to have remembered how they died and I would say they could have all had a better death if Mm. we'd been more prepared if people had spoken to us and if nobody had don't think ever asked any of them what they wanted and so I think that focused my attention onto what happens to people and their families when people are obviously dying but nobody ever talks about it and then when it happens in a sort of big car crash of a way it's unnecessarily traumatic it really stuck with me and I was 
I'm trying to think back now. I was a medical student when my first grandparent died and a junior doctor, very junior, when my others died. So I wasn't in a position to really help or guide much at that point. So now a bit older and a bit wiser, hopefully, maybe I can focus other people's attentions to what's actually important when people are entering that last phase of life. Well, thank you very much for for sharing that. So now do you combine your clinical work as a geriatrician with the training side as well? How does it all fit together? So most of my week is clinical. There's lots of on-the-job training just for the team that are around me and, and my department. But part of my week revolves around training and also developing advanced care planning QI. So it's probably a split week, half training and half clinical. And I noticed that at the MIMS Learning Live presentation that you did with the with the interactive session with the actor and, and the doctor, that it got a lot of good engagement from the GPs who were there. I don't know if there's a difference in the way that GPs and secondary care clinicians, in terms of their familiarity with talking about end of life and talking about advanced care planning, but would you be able to say a little bit about how clinicians, be they primary or secondary, could Im- improve their practice in this area? So I think the difficulty is that everybody thinks it's somebody else's job. Not all the time, but a lot of the time. So when patients come into hospital, it's quite easy to say, well, you know, they're only in hospital. The GP should have this conversation. But then the GP is saying, I've got 10 minutes and you see a different GP every time. But when you're in hospital, you're there for a few weeks. The hospital should have this conversation. So it ends up with nobody having this conversation. I would say that people are often uncomfortable having these conversations when there is no sense of urgency or there's no immediately preceding drama. So when someone's stable and nobody's thinking about it, it gets easily forgotten because there's no trigger. But actually, when people are stable and it's all settling and quiet, that's the time to have a really good conversation because then you actually know what people do want. So I don't think it really makes any difference whether you're in GP or hospital. I think there are pros and cons of doing an advanced care planning either setting and both have their challenges. But I would say it's everybody's business. And if we all take on the responsibility to do it, then actually patients might get better care. And in terms of how to get the right training, I think there is plenty of training available. But I think if doctors and actually healthcare professionals, doesn't even have to be doctors, in either setting can even start off with the question of what matters to you. It doesn't take a whole lot of training to ask that. But if Mm -hmm. people can just start off with that simple question, I think that would actually make a huge difference because people were not even doing that bit yet. So that would be my starting point. And is it difficult for clinicians to find the time to ask that question, given that quite a lot might emerge from the answer? Yes, true. So I would say that if you can set aside a bit more time, that's helpful. And in the GP setting, it's sometimes helpful to plan a conversation in advance to say, do you know what, let's have a talk about what the future holds and what that looks like. It'd be nice to sit down and have a proper conversation. And so you block out two appointments if you can or whatever you can. And the same if you're in a busy hospital setting. 
But if we don't take the time to ask these questions, trying to do it in a rush when people are unwell and families are stressed and strained, I can promise you from experience, it takes many more hours than that 20 minutes or however long you spoke to them initially. And trying to arrange palliative care in the community at the last minute is really difficult. So if you haven't planned it, it won't happen. And if we think that we'll easily spend 10 or 20 minutes sorting out someone's medications or their heart failure or whatever their problem is, the death is an inevitability. So I think we owe it to our patients to spend a little bit of time considering how it is that they want to be looked after. And with the training that you've conducted, what other barriers and impediments have you discovered amongst clinicians as to why people don't necessarily have the conversation or why they think, oh, somebody else can do it? You've alluded to time and everybody's pressured. And this is something that easily slips down the priority list. But I would urge people to put it up there near the top. People don't necessarily feel they have the training or the confidence to have the conversation. So that's a big factor. And actually, people are much better equipped than they think they are because it's just a conversation at the end of the day. And it doesn't have to be intimidating and scary. It can just be a really personal one-to-one with somebody. But people don't know what to do. They haven't done it. So, you know, you get uncomfortable. And the other issue that people have is thinking they're doing it too early and worrying about upsetting people. Am I going to say the wrong thing? And so that's, again, it's about training people how to frame the conversation. It doesn't have to be a conversation that's all doom and gloom. How are you going to die? And what does death look like? It can be, how do you want to be cared for? What does the future look like? What things do you want? What matters to you? And explaining that we're talking about things when it's nice and calm and when people have the luxury to think about it. So it's about teaching people how to frame the conversation and what are the important points to consider. And in an ideal world, what would the end-of-life care and advanced planning scenario look like? Would everyone get more training in medical school so that they were getting practice straight away? And would things look, look very different? I think that's coming slowly. I think the more we talk about it, the more medical schools will pick up on it. It will start hopefully becoming more commonplace within specialty training and hopefully within GP training as well. The general sort of consensus is that this is something that's really important. And so I would hope that if in five years time we chat again or (laughs) sooner even, it's not something that people are so uncomfortable with. And if I say to a group of people, has anyone had advanced care planning training? I would hope that people would put their hands up and say yes, as opposed to a sort of tumbleweed (laughs) kind of silence with the odd one in the background we are improving definitely if I look back to where I was five years ago when no one even knew what this was and COVID focused everybody's minds quite sharply but now we're really much much better than we were well that's good news a very very positive note to conclude on so Anna's going to be coming back to MIMS Learning Live in Liverpool at the end of November to talk to GPs again about this issue and I'm sure you'll get great response again. Was there anything else you wanted to add before we before we wrap up? Just to point out really that 
dying's normal and we're all going to die and it doesn't have to be this big scary topic that people don't want to talk about and so I hope that we can help our patients to live well but also help them to die well that's the best patient care in my opinion yeah yeah very important definitely well thank you so much Anna for your wise words and it's encouraging to hear that the picture seems to be getting a bit more encouraging and I hope that that trend continues and that the training continues to go well and we'll look forward to seeing you in November and thank you very much for coming to speak to us today lovely thank you so much looking forward to November too We're back for our three key points section, and this week we'll be talking about bronchiolitis. These three points are drawn from a learning module on NICE guidance, written by GP Sunita Couture, and updated by Dr. Pippin Singh. So over to you, Sangeeta, for the first learning point. Our first point is on presentation in very young infants. Most cases of bronchiolitis present in infants three to six months of age with choroidal symptoms for one to three days, followed by coughing and wheezing. There tends to be increased respiratory effort, evidenced by tachypnea, grunting, and chest wall recession. Bronchiolitis may also affect feeding because of the increased breathing work. In infants younger than six weeks of age, though, apnea may be the only clinical feature. So our first point is that in very young infants, you will be aware to look out for signs of respiratory distress. But bear in mind that in those under six weeks old, you may only see apnea as a symptom. And what's our second point, Rhiannon? Our second point is on recommended investigations. NICE recommends measuring oxygen saturation in children with suspected bronchiolitis if pulse oximetry is available. It states that healthcare professionals performing pulse oximetry should have appropriate training, particularly when using it in young children and babies. NICE does not advise the use of routine blood tests or chest x-ray in suspected bronchiolitis because chest x-ray changes may mirror those of pneumonia. So our second point is that you should use pulse oximetry, providing you are trained in its use where young children are concerned, but avoid routine blood tests or x-rays. And our third point is on when to refer. This learning module lists criteria for referral to emergency services or to secondary care. For example, based on signs of severe respiratory distress or clinical dehydration. But another important factor that may guide the need for hospital admission is the parent's ability to look after a child with bronchiolitis. For example, does the parent feel confident in recognising signs of deterioration or do they live far away from the hospital? So our third and final point is that non-clinical factors may affect your decision-making around referral, taking into account the family situation. So we hope these points will be useful for you and do recommend that you read and digest the learning module so you're aware of the latest NICE guidance on bronchiolitis. And thank you very much for being with us during season two of our podcast. If you missed any episodes, you can catch up on your podcast player or on the MIMS Learning website. And we look forward very much to getting together again for the next season, where we hope to inspire you with more essential clinical learning.